0: I want to be in the Bahamas, driving a speedboat without a care in the world, and poof, she's gone. Me next, says the sales rep. I want to be in Hawaii, relaxing on a beach with a personal masseuse and plenty of money to spend, and poof, he's gone. Okay, you're up, said the genie to the manager. The manager says, I want those two back in my office by lunch. Moral of the story is: you always let your boss have first say. Amen. Now, when you read passages from the Old Testament, David and Goliath, Abraham and Isaac, Jonah and the fish, Daniel and the lions, stand the three asbestos Hebrews in the fiery furnace, there's a tendency for people to read articles and stories like that, like our illustration that we just gave—a story with a moral. Most of us. Uh, when we read a story like that, okay, so I'm supposed to be like David in this situation, or I'm supposed to be like Abraham, or, or not supposed to be like them uh, if it was a bad, uh, like Samson. I'm not supposed to be like Samson. In other words, we read them to find the moral of the story. And that's not all bad, by the way. It's a good thing to insert us in and, and uh, find out what moral is trying to be taught there. But there's an interesting scene in the New Testament, I think, that will give us some light on this that we see after Jesus was raised from the dead. Luke was, uh, t- tells us about this, where Jesus met two disciples. They're on their way to Emmaus. The crucifixion has happened. Jesus has been buried, and uh, he's been in the grave for a few days. And, of course, now he's risen, and he joins these two men walking to Emmaus. He asks them. They were sad, the Bible says, and, and they were talking in deep discussion. As Jesus joined them, he comes up and says, so... What's going on, guys? And I'm paraphrasing, but they said something along the lines of, What, have you been living under a rock? Haven't you heard about what's going on in Jerusalem? And so they told him about the crucifixion and how uh, Jesus was, had, was crucified and buried, and now the body is missing, and somebody had said he was alive, but no one has seen the body yet. You know the story. He uh, spent some time with them, went to their home uh, for a meal, and then when he revealed himself, and Disappeared, what happened is they immediately ran to tell the eleven, and while they were telling the eleven about what happened, Jesus appears to them as well. Now, here's what I want to point out Jesus said to those two in Luke 24 25, O fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. To all of them, after they were together with the eleven and these two, he said, These are the words which I spake unto you, that all these things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. In other words, what Jesus is saying, you've read the Bible for years, and yet you're amazed that the Messiah is going to come and going to die and raise from the dead. The reason that you are confused and amazed and upset, Jesus is telling them, you've read the Bible, but you did not understand it. So you know what Jesus did to answer the problem there going on in that day, verse twenty-seven. In beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now I say all that to say, when we read the Old Testament, we must do so with the understanding that every prophet in the Old Testament is pointing to the true prophet, Jesus Christ. Every priest is pointing to the true priest. Every king is pointing to the true king. Every servant is pointing to the true servant. Every hero is pointing to the true hero. What I'm saying is you can either read the Bible moralistically or you can read it redemptively. If you do it moralistically, you're going to feel pretty crushed. There's no way that you can obey all the commandments. There's no way that you can fulfill all the expectations put on God's people. And uh, there's no way you can measure up. So, A lot of times it will condemn you more than encourage you. However, if you read the Old Testament redemptively, you understand that every page, every story, everything is building up towards Jesus Christ. It's what it's all about. About what Christ has done for us to save us and to redeem us. And so, as we examine this specific Old Testament passage, or any, for that matter, we need to view it as primarily about Jesus You not only see what it tells us to do in the direct message, but what He has done for us. And only when you see these things, both of them, not only what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live, but also what He has done for us, only then does the Bible really make a difference in your life. Lots of people, religions, live by a set of rules. We understand the redemption power of Jesus Christ. So let's do that this morning. If you've got your Bibles open, 2 Samuel chapter 23, we're going to start reading verse number 13. And three of the 30 chief went down and came to David in the harvest time and to the cave of Abdullam, and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in an hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men brake through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives, therefore he would not drink it? These things did these three mighty men. Father, I pray you'd help us today as we look at the story of the mighty men here specifically, but in a greater picture of what you've done for us. We pray that you'd be with us in the next few minutes. Now help us to have no distractions, but listen attentively to what you'd have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at the life of David here, or, or this is a part of the life of David, the man that was anointed to be king. Now, we take another, uh, as we look at, take a look at this specific story of what happened in this window of David's life, we see mentioned the mighty men of David. A little background here uh, will help us to understand who they are. You may remember David was anointed as king. And when King Saul heard that David was anointed to be the next king instead of one of his heirs, Uh, He was filled with rage and jealousy. He set out to try to kill David. And David had to flee into the wilderness and was there for a number of years. While on the run, a number of men gathered around David. The Bible talks about those that had debts and those that had some problems fitting into society. And they started to gather around David. It's up to 400 at one point, we know. Of course, Saul never succeeded in killing David, and these men became David's guardians, David's companions. They were very skillful men of war and did on, I'm sure, many occasions save David's life. Eventually, Saul dies and David becomes king. After he becomes king, these men become his military elite. They were his secret service, if you will. They had become a team, they become a family. Uh, They were battle-hardened. They were skilled in combat. Many of them became leaders in David's army. They were called his mighty men. It was a military elite that they made up. Now, in the text that we read here, uh, this happens early in David's career as king. The Philistines, who were arch rivals of the Israelites, decided to invade Israel and to try to knock this new king down. They thought that They could maybe perhaps capture him or at least weaken him. And now David's in the cave of Adullam. This shows how weak Israel was. The Philistines have essentially run David into the wilderness again. Now three of David's best men came down to join him. And look at verse number four. The Bible says, and David was then in a hole. The garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. So the Philistines were camped. In the valley of Rephaim, a few miles south of, uh, west of Jerusalem, and they had taken over Bethlehem as their headquarters. Bethlehem, you remember, was David's hometown. The Philistines had essentially run David back into the wilderness. And the Bible also mentions that it was harvest time. And so, being harvest time, if the Philistines were there uh, and they would plunder the harvest, then it would hurt Israel's food supply. This was not. A good situation. David out in the wilderness again, the Philistines in the heart of Israel essentially about to overthrow him. With that in mind, we read verse number 15. David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now, the first thing we must understand David was not thirsty. Now we read that and say, what are you talking about? Of course he was thirsty. He says he wishes he'd have a drink. Look, you can't set up a headquarters, a stronghold like David had, and not have some kind of water supply or a spring. Uh, I don't believe this is talking about David being physically thirsty. David's not longing for water. He's longing for something more. It's the only possible explanation for what the mighty men did in, uh, right after the, he mentions that. <clears throat> I believe David is not wrestling with physical thirst, but with the promise of God. God's promise he's going to be with David. God's promised that he would be the deliverer of Israel. God's promised him that he would rule and he promised to set David up and all his descendants. Now, here's David. He's so trivial, he can't even get a drink of water from his hometown. He's an absolute weakling. His defeat is, or seems, inevitable. I believe what he's really saying is, will I ever drink from that well again? Will I ever really be king? Is God really with me? He's wrestling with the promise of God. You see, this verse is not a command. In no way is this verse a command to his men. It's more like a, like a sigh, like a longing, like a remembrance of something in the past. The sweet water of Bethlehem to David represented the favor of God. It represented the grace of God. Represented a promise of God. And he says, oh, that someone would give me to drink the water of the well of Bethlehem. It kind of seems like in the picture that we're drawn here that the mighty men overhear this. They're not commanded by any means by David. David is not throwing down a challenge or a dare. Uh, they overhear this. And by the way, if you want to see who these men were, read the previous part of the chapter. Uh, these not to be crude in my language, but these were some bad dudes, these guys right here. They were really something. Uh, you, uh, just to name them, Adino took his spear by himself and killed 800 men. Eat your heart out, Bruce Lee. 800 men by himself. Eleazar. He, uh, the Philistines, uh, attacked and while the army was away. All the Israelites was away. So Eleazar, the Bible says, fought them himself and won a great victory. God gave him a great victory that day. Shammah. Shammah, I like this guy. The Philistines showed up to a patch of beans, essentially a field of lentils, the Bible says. And who likes lentils? That's what the Israelites thought. I'm going to let them have this field of lentils, but Shammah basically said, no, no. I don't care if it's just beans. These are God's beans. And he stood and fought. And he stood by himself and fought the whole troop by himself and won a victory. These guys were the Chuck Norris of that day. They were all men of great valor. And they hear the king's longing here. And I believe they recognize the significance of what he's saying. Will I ever drink from Bethlehem again? Will I ever be able to defeat the Philistines? Will I ever see my home again? Look at verse number 16. The three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Now, I've told you before, I'm a visual type of guy. And this is frustratingly abbreviated, isn't it? Think about what it involved for them to do this went up and break through the lines, got some water and brought it back to David. There's a there's a books that could be written about that battle. There's whole pages we could have on it. And uh, this, this I just want to hear more when I read that. What did you do, not do tonight? Well, we broke through the enemy lines and got a cup of water, brought it back for the boss. Wow, you and what army? It was just me and two buddies. I mean, this is all we have on this verse. It's just like a footnote. And it's shocking to me that how in the Bible, some of the greatest heroic feats, they're just spoken about briefly, matter-of-factly. See, the Bible understands the shallowness of human glory. We, we like it. We, we focus on it. That's why if you watch a football game, you have instant what replays. You see it again. Amazing plays. And, and uh, we like to focus on our accomplishments. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible, see, as I said before, knows that all human heroes point to the real hero so it doesn't romanticize the human heroes. The Bible is not a collection of myths or human poetry or human art. The Bible is revelation from God. So, looking at that verse, though, we can fill in the blanks. Here are some things we know that would have happened. If you read 1 Samuel, you'll understand, uh, I think it's uh, chapter 24, specifically, uh, talks about the garrisons that surround the Philistine camp. So in every Philistine camp, there was garrisons. In fact, Jonathan and his armor bearer faced several garrisons when they came. Each garrison had 20 soldiers. And so, first of all, these three guys would have had to cut their way through a garrison of 20 men. Finally, they get to Bethlehem, which was the headquarters. And Bethlehem's gate was up a hill, and so they would have to fight uphill Break through the lines. I mean, just picture this: get to the well, and while one guy's getting water, the other guys are fighting off the enemy. And then, as he gets the water, he's got it—water skin, I'm guessing—and now he's they're, they're running off trying to protect the water, get it back to David as they fight their way back through the men. I just imagine the scene. Can you imagine the Philistines' faces while they fight their way out? Of the camp again with a water skin above their head. Imagine the report as they had to go back. Commander, we've been infiltrated. Oh, yes, what was the troop size? It was, uh, it was actually three guys. What were they after? Arms, hostages? They got a cup of water and then they left again. I mean, this is an, an, kind of an absurd story in Scripture here. We're told they brought it back to David. He was so moved. He was so filled with joy. He took it, and the Bible says that he poured it out into the ground. Now, it it would be just picturing these guys watching this, all that they had just went through. He pours it out in the ground there. It's a puddle for a little bit, and then it sinks away into nothing. Were they upset? I don't believe it. We risked our lives. And he didn't even drink it. I don't think they were. I believe they would have just bowed their heads. I think they would have been amazed and honored because we're told he didn't just pour it out. It says he poured it out into the Lord. He turned this into a drink offering, a thank offering, if you will. He turned it into an act of worship. What he's saying is here, here is, I know because of the sacrifice of these men, and I know because of what they accomplished through God's help, God is with me. See, God showed David that if three men could break into the Philistine camp through their lines, get water and get away with it again, he could defeat them and God was with him. Not only did David know, but these three men knew. Not only did the three mighty men know, but the whole army know. For all we know, this was a turning point in the war. Can you imagine how demoralized the other army would be and how filled with confidence the Israelite army would be. These three mighty men were not just macho daredevils. They knew what they were doing. They knew what their master was after, what he was longing for. They knew that he needed the assurance that God was with him. And so they said, we're going to show him that he is. They bet their lives on the promise of God. They showed total devotion to their master. And then the Bible finishes it off with, these things did these three mighty men. Wow. What a story, huh? What a great uh, exploits of these men that we see. Now, what does it mean? Now, remember what we said before. First, you look at it. You look at the story, and you you look at how it can be an example for us, and then also we look at it to see what God has done for us. I want to look at several lessons we can take from it. Uh, Number one, anything that you've earned or think you've earned really is nothing more than a gift of God. What David was doing with that water when he poured it out before the Lord, this is not your trophy, men. This is a gift of God. In other words, if it weren't for God's grace, you would not have succeeded. And he pours it out before the Lord. Don't look at your strength. Don't look at your skill. Don't say, I did that. Can I tell you today, friends, any accomplishments that you think that you've done on your own, would you just pour it out before the Lord? Because without Him, you could accomplish nothing. John chapter 15 says, Without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. We can't do anything without Him. These guys almost killed themselves. These mighty men did something. Yes, it took skill. Yes, it took ability. But David poured that all out to the Lord. Basically saying, hey, did you earn your strong body? Did you earn your talent, your ability? It was a gift. To get in and out of an armed camp like that, all it would take is one spear, one arrow, one mistake. God was good to them. I don't care how great you are. David is essentially saying here, you could be dead. Whatever you've achieved in life, my friend, pour it out before the Lord. Let God have ownership in your life the way we talked about last week. Recognize that without Him, we could do nothing. And then second lesson that I take from this story, I think we can take easily from it, is that the king's wish was their command. They were so devoted to their king that there was no difference between a command, a suggestion, or just a sigh. David's sigh was their command, his longing. This tells you the difference between a religious person and a Christian. Christians respond to God, or they should respond to God, the way these men responded to David, who, by the way, is a type of Messiah throughout the Bible. There's a big difference between a Christian uh, and a religious person in this way. It's found in the response <coughs> to the Lord. Religious thinking says, what does God require of me? I need help. I need power. I need strength. I need wisdom. I need forgiveness. What do I have to do to get it? They concentrate on the rules, but a Christian concentrates on God's heart. A religious person, his is their th- religious thinking says, what are the rules? What do you want me to do? A Christian's response is, what do you love? What do you rejoice in? What gives you pleasure? See, the religious person uh, his goal is to do what God wants and get some kind of reward for it. But for the Christian, the reward is pleasing God in itself. God's delight is his reward. In verse 15, Oh, that one would give me to drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem. In, verse, in the next verse immediately, the Bible says, The three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines. They didn't have a discussion. They didn't have a holy huddle. They didn't have a pros and cons list. Uh, Their devotion was spontaneous. There was such a love for their master that they looked for ways to show it. He sighs and they went. That should be the Christian's response. You know, when you're working for a boss, you find out what the rules are and you obey the rules. That's like religion. When you're in love, it's different. You do the research. You look for what will make that person happy. You're like a detective. You look for hints. You look for size. You look for anything to help you to give them joy. Oh, I know how to make him or her smile. I know how to give them joy. You're active. You're not passive. You don't wait for the rule. You look for the opportunities. You're not after the rules. You're after the heart. That's the difference. Religion and Christianity. There's such a love for your master. The minute that you get a whiff of something that'll please him, you're on it. That's the difference. Uh, there's To the Christian, really, there's no difference between a command, a suggestion, or a sigh from our Savior. We ought to be all over it the way that these men were. The relationship between a religious person and God, that's not personal. not personal at all, but the relationship between a Christian and a God is deeply personal. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about... Prayer, and we talked about how God is our Father. There's a relationship there. Family makes a difference, doesn't it? Total devotion. That's how we're supposed to live. When David saw these mighty men, how they'd broken through and did what they did, he had a new reassurance. Through their sacrifice, he had an assurance that God was with him. Can I tell you today, friend, that someone has overheard your sigh? There's somebody who has heard your heart sighing for the water of life. There's someone who's overheard your sigh for home, just like David. Someone has overheard. Your heart wants home. A lot of people don't even realize it. There's so much misery and chaos in the world today, and folks don't even realize that they're trying to fill that void in their life with something that doesn't fit. It's never going to accomplish it. Wealth doesn't do it. Uh, The fame doesn't do it. Success doesn't do it. None of these things satisfy that longing in the human heart that only God can satisfy. But there's someone who overheard that sigh and that cry for the water of life, that somebody girded himself and that somebody went through the enemy lines for you. Here's the difference. He didn't break through the enemy lines at the risk of his life he broke through at the cost of his life. John 10, 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. His life was poured out, and that gives us more assurance that God is with us and for us than David ever had. because of what Jesus Christ did. We should be every bit as astounded and joyful as David was. And every bit as confident as he was from it. David only had a temporary sacrifice. Uh, they, these men, at the risk of their lives, proved that God loved him and proved that God was with him. We have the Son of God Himself. He heard your sigh. He set His face like a flint. He broke through the enemy lines. He died for you. The only way that we can possibly have the water of life is that He paid for the penalty of your sins. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift, amen, I love that word, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ knew that His triumph would be His defeat and that His defeat would be His triumph. He went anyway. Oh, friend, listen, He's the mighty man. He's the hero of the story. He's the hero of our life. Uh, as well. He's the one who died to show you there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walked not after the flesh but after the spirit. Think about these mighty men who are so absolutely devoted to David. I love their response. If you remember, though, what Jesus did for you and at what cost that he did it, how your eternity is forever affected if you're a child of God, how you have an eternal home in heaven. Oh, listen, friend, your devotion will be second nature to you. You'll break through any enemy lines like they did. You'll take on any risk. You'll pay any price because it's nothing compared to what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, they present uh, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. Of course it's reasonable. After all he did for us. Finally, I want to close with this. David was in the cave when his reinforcement came. This encouragement. Again and again, David found himself in caves instead of on the throne. On the run when he should have been leading the nation. God constantly said, I'll make you this great man. we will make you a big ruler and, and your family's going to rule for generations. And David yet always seemed to be on the run. Sometimes it's hard to claim the promises of God when you're in a cave. amen. When things don't seem to be working out, he was suffering so much of the time. And friend, today, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if He's your Lord and Savior, He's with you. He's for you. He wants to use you. Let that sacrifice on Calvary be the proof, all the proof that we need. David poured that water out before the Lord. He had a new inward confidence. He understood that God was with him because of the sacrifice of these men. And we may be suffering today. We may be in a cave as well. Your life may have problems too, but you'll see like David that there are ways that God actually answers your prayers. There are ways in which God actually makes good on His promises. And the ways that God does that sometimes involves, not goes around, the problems in your life in the first place. You know what God did with all this time that David spent in the wilderness? prepared him to be a good king. Where do do we get our book of Psalms? Much of it. Read the Psalms, and a lot of it is from David's travels out through the wilderness, learning to trust God. 1 Peter 5, 7, it's our memory verse this week, casting all our care upon him, for he careth for you. In other words, you look at Jesus' life poured out for you. And this tells us, if Jesus has done this, I have nothing to fear. If Jesus has done this for me, why would God let me down now? Amen? If Jesus has done this for me, he's going to be with me until the end. He promises I'll never leave you nor forsake you. How do we allow the problems of life to so overwhelm us and so overcome us that we get our eyes off of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary? It's the same principle as David and Goliath whole army saw a big giant. David saw a big God. That's the same principle as this right here. How big is your God? These three heroes, these three mighty men, they pointed to the one, as does the whole Old Testament. And may I today, friend, point you to the same one. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions today. Nobody's looking around.